You're listening to the Living Presence Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from East Gwillimbury, Ontario. And welcome to the Living Presence Podcast for Monday, June 25th. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am the Community Minister of the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada in East Gwillimbury, Ontario. Yesterday was a pretty busy and exciting day in Toronto. As the annual Pride Parade wound its way through downtown, many members of the United Church were covered in rainbows and glitter as they marched together to drums and cheers. I was not there, but to my friends who were there, proclaiming the truth that love is love and God loves love, I was there with you in heart and in spirit. Our reflection this week is based off of a sermon I gave to Schomburg and Nobleton United Churches yesterday. Normally on the show, I give a little bit of background on the historical and literary context of our readings. And I'm aware that because I've been recycling talks that I've been giving in church sanctuaries, where it would feel strange if I was explaining everything as I go, I might be slipping into Christianese and using words some of our listeners may not have heard before, and I apologize for that. But for those who listen to this podcast who don't attend church— you now have a little bit of a window into what you might hear at a United Church of Canada worship service. As always, you can go to our show notes where I place lots of links related to the theme of our episode. On this week's show, we'll be talking about pride and the church's history of harm with LGBTQ communities, as well as the hope that comes with the mending of relationships. You'll get to hear about the time I thought I was going to die on the Pacific Ocean, and how sometimes the only thing to be done is to roll up our sleeves and jump into the freezing water. We have two scripture readings today, read to us by the fine people of East End United, which is an emerging regional ministry in the East End of Toronto. Our first scripture reading is from the Hebrew scriptures, 1 Samuel, when David slays Goliath and then finds Jonathan, a man with whom David shared a deep and loyal relationship. We then move into the fourth chapter of Mark, where there is a storm raging, the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus is sleeping through the whole thing. And our music. Our music today comes entirely from the choir of Eastminster United Church. Eastminster has a brilliant YouTube channel, with their choir singing a wide range of repertoire, from traditional hymns to gospel, to choral interpretations of current pop music. You can find the videos of all the music you hear this episode on our show notes, and you can find Eastminster United Church at www.eastminsteruc.org. To start us off, this is their performance of Lady Gaga's 2011 self-love anthem, 
born this way. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on, in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he Father, and whenever a lion or a bear came from the flock, 
It went after it. I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And it turned against me. I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Since he has defied the armies of the living God, David said. The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord go with you. Saul clothed David in his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head, and closed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor and tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then he took the staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in his pouch. His sling was in his hand and he drew near the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by the sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them to the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great gale arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased and there was dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? That was Sarah Miller, Mishiko Baunkai, and Jane Sandon from East End United reading live from the United Church of Canada's Posse of Marchers just before joining the Pride Parade in Toronto. So I've mentioned my husband, Jason, more than a few times on this podcast. It's hard for me to remember that there ever was a time before he was my husband and before we had children, but of course there was. And there was that really precious time in any emerging relationship where you're still getting to know one another. And part of getting to know your partner is getting to know their parents. Now, I grew up in central Ontario, so Jason had the opportunity to meet my parents relatively early in our relationship. Jason's parents are divorced. His mother lives in Calgary near his sister, and his father and stepmother live on Vancouver Island. So the only way I was going to meet his parents was if it was clear this relationship was serious. So in April of 2010, I finished a Western Canadian music tour, and Jason flew out to meet me in Vancouver, and I finally got to meet his father, Harry. Now, Harry is what you might call an alpha male. He's a smart, talented business guy. He was heavily involved with federal politics in the 1990s. And the first day we met, we were driving back to his home from the ferry as he told a story, which I've since heard about half a dozen times, about how he accidentally stabbed himself in the leg while cleaning a moose. But it was no big deal. Attempting to make a connection with the father of the man I already hoped would someday be my husband, I said to him, Oh, Harry, I didn't know you go hunting. Brienne, I don't go hunting. I go killing. That is my father-in-law. He has been incredibly good to me, and I love him dearly. But yeah, this is a guy who rarely questions his abilities. Just before our visit, Harry had purchased his first serious fishing boat. A serious boat for a serious fisherman. And because it was his first serious boat meant for fishing salmon and halibut on the Pacific, he brought a guide along the first time he went out in the inlet. We had a great time, and we caught a lot of fish, and everyone was happy. The next day, Harry wanted to go out on the boat again, and this time without the guide. He was going to pilot the boat himself. So for the second morning in a row... I got myself up at 3 a.m. because that's what you do when you're trying to impress somebody whose son you're hoping to marry, piled in the car, and drove off to the marina in Port Alberni. We puttered around the inlet, trolled for some salmon, and then after Harry got bored of that, he said he wanted to take the boat into the open water. He then asked me if I got seasick, and I confidently said that I did not get seasick, and off we went. Now, an appropriate follow-up question might have been, have you ever been on open ocean water before? Because the answer to that question would have been no. And I had absolutely no idea that the swells on the ocean were any different than swells in, say, the middle of Lake Ontario. 
For those of you who might possibly be as ignorant as I was, let me tell you, yes, they are different. Very different. And within a few minutes of getting into the open water, I was aware of feeling not the greatest. I was still functioning. It mostly felt like mild car sickness, but I was not at my best. Jason and I started jigging for halibut on either side of the boat, and all was going well until Harry made a sharp turn without letting us know. Before we could react, our fishing lines got crossed and caught in the motor, which stalled and completely stopped working. We tried the trolling motor, which is a tiny secondary motor used when fishing for salmon, and it wasn't working either. So in case you've lost track at this point, here is the scene. We're in a new boat, which my boyfriend's father is taking out for the first time on his own. We're in open water. I've just discovered that I do in fact get seasick, and we have lost both means of steering and propulsion. So we're just floating. Floating towards a large reef, which is pretty much the only thing between us and Japan. We were not in a good situation. And I was scared. I was really scared. But I am not an experienced fisherman or fisher person. I am not and was not an experienced catcher of fish. And it's obvious I didn't have any experience on the water. And I was frightened, but I was frightened for the wrong reason. I was scared because I thought I had broken Harry's boat. I thought there was something I should have done with the lines, but didn't. And now my future father-in-law's boat is broken. And it's all my fault. And that was stupid. Because what I actually should have been frightened about was how dangerous it was to just be floating around on the open water towards this reef. Up to a point, Jason was remaining fairly calm. But I understood just how much trouble we were in when Harry threw the instruction manual at Jason and said, Here, see if you can figure something out. Harry is not the kind of guy who reads the directions. We were probably getting pretty close to calling the Coast Guard. And then I threw up over the side of the boat like I'd never thrown up in my life. It was awful. Now Peter and the other disciples in our gospel reading today, they were experienced fishermen. And they got it. They understood the gravity of a storm on the water. A large storm is basically a fisherman's worst nightmare. So on a boat with a bunch of experienced fishermen, it shouldn't be at all surprising that people are kind of losing their mind. Jesus' response almost doesn't seem fair. Or maybe that's the point. I have an anaphylactic allergy to bees. So I was thinking the other night that if Jesus ever wanted to test me, he'd ask me to drive us to the other side. And to the other side just means to a foreign land. So maybe we're driving to Niagara Falls or something. But Jesus and I are driving, and then he falls asleep. Just as I realize there is an open beehive in the back seat of the car. Why are you so afraid? 
have you still no faith? It's not that I don't have faith in Jesus. I just don't have so much faith in bees. Often our greatest fears are the fears we've learned to be afraid of because we understand what's at stake. In my work with the Living Presence Ministry, I serve many different demographics of people who can be categorized in any number of different configurations. One way folks can be categorized is by what their relationship to church is and has been in the past. The first group of people are what we call churched people, church as a verb. These are people who are members of or connected to a Christian faith community and for whom this has generally been a positive experience. The second group are unchurched people, people who have had no experience of church or any other faith community. They have grown up and currently exist in an entirely secular environment. It's possible that the only experience these people have had with the church is what they see represented by the media on television. And let's be honest, that's not usually very flattering. Then there are people who belong to faith communities other than Christian. And finally, number four, the de-churched people. These are people who have had connection to a Christian faith community in the past, but for whom that experience has either not maintained relevancy, or sadly more often than not, has been acutely damaging. In the United Church, there are two specific groups where we have done a considerable amount of harm. The first are Indigenous peoples, and the second are members of LGBTQ communities. It was only in 1988 that the United Church began to allow anybody, regardless of sexual orientation, to be full members within the Church, and therefore eligible for ordered ministry. In most other denominations around the world today, LGBTQ people are not allowed to serve in leadership positions. There are many up-and-coming youth-oriented churches with rock music and video feeds of sermons piped into high school gyms and movie theaters, who tell the media they are very welcoming of people regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And to a point, this is true. They are welcome to sit in the pews and take part in the service and join the small groups, but ultimately their relationships are still considered sinful perhaps a sin no greater than adultery or coveting, but a sin nonetheless. And they will never be allowed to be a pastor at that church, a youth leader, a music director, or any position of accountable leadership. I have friends who were highly involved members of their church, until they were told they could no longer volunteer or work on committees. They'd been attending that church for 15 years, and it broke their heart. I have other friends who grew up within the Pentecostal tradition and can no longer set foot inside any church building because of the hostility and violence they experienced when people found out whom they loved. 
And so church becomes their biggest nightmare. It was the fear they knew because they understood what was at stake. And just as my faith in bees is suspect, for many people in the LGBTQ communities, it is not faith in God that is lacking. It's faith in the people who claim to follow Jesus. Because how can you reconcile the hypocrisy of huge swaths of Christians who talk about Christ's love and faith in a man who always stood with those on the margins and yet act in such cruel and harmful ways towards God's beloved children? Depending on which translation of this passage we use, it can sound like fear is the opposite of faith. It is not but fear can make it harder to access faith. It can make it harder for folks who have been harmed to access their spiritual center or know what it is to be in a healthy faith community because of the harm that has been inflicted upon them. Fear can also make it harder to access faith for those who refuse to accept those who are gay, lesbian, queer, transgendered, two-spirited, gender-fluid, and any of the many other expressions of identity and integrity. It is harder for those people who are fearful and prejudiced to live faithfully in the world. Because when Jesus says, love one another and love your neighbor with no conditions and no footnotes, that means loving wholeheartedly all of God's creation It is hard to access a faithful, Christ-inspired life if we don't. After the famous battle of David versus the giant, David finds comfort with Jonathan, Saul's son, for he loved him as his own soul. Now there is much disagreement about the nature of Jonathan and David's relationship. There are scholars who believe that their love was filial, a deep, brotherly kind of love. In current Western culture, we have a very specific understanding and value level placed on friendship. Romantic relationships and familial relationships are often prioritized over friendships in terms of investment. We assume this is how things work all over the world and have always worked, But it is not. It is entirely possible that Jonathan and David had a deeply intimate loyalty and friendship that our 21st century North American minds have trouble wrapping our heads around. But there are also academics who suggest that David and Jonathan were in a romantic, possibly sexual relationship with one another. This school of thought maintains that the Hebrew used in this story is the language of lovers, not friends. And I would argue for a moment, and I say this tentatively because I really do love picking apart the origins of scripture, but for a moment I would say it doesn't really matter what the intention of the author was. What does matter is how we feel when we read it. What would it mean if the king of Israel, a man with direct lineage to Jesus, what would it mean 
if he was a bisexual man? Would that change how we see his narrative? Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe it would be great for those in same-sex relationships to see themselves represented in scripture. But if our automatic response to the wondering about David and Jonathan's love is an emotional, reactionary no, not possible, and I'm not even going there, it is worth exploring why. Why can't we go there? Why can't we explore it? What is at stake, and where is the fear coming from? It is not enough for our congregations to just say we are welcoming. Because I promise you, those in LGBTQ communities who have been harmed were harmed by churches who thought of themselves as welcoming. They fear the storm they've been taught to fear. And the church created that storm. And it's going to take a lot more time and even more intention to undo the hurt and calm the fear. It means being visibly allied with the queer community. Rainbows are a good start. It means probably taking part in the United Church's affirming process. It means publicly calling out practices in our communities and our governments that work to oppress, leave out, and harm gay and trans people, but doing it publicly and putting the stamp of our churches on the statement or letter to the editor. If there is a commitment to this, after a period of time of seeing faithful witness to loving all God's people lived out in the world, our friends who have been harmed might consider, might consider exploring what life in a community dedicated to being God's hands in the world might look like for them. Now, back to the Pacific Ocean. As we were floating towards that reef, Harry realized the only way we were going to get out of our mess was for him to roll up his sleeves and his pants and climb in the water to fix the engine. It was April 3rd. The water was freezing, and the task was painful. The time in the water also forced him to face his responsibility in our predicament. However, he was also the one who got us out of the mess. Harry saved us that day. And he said he was sorry. And that might have been even harder than climbing into the freezing water. But he also took action to make sure it never happened again. By signing up for more driving lessons at the marina. In much the same way, the United Church has acknowledged the pain we have caused and has asked congregations to roll up their sleeves and do some hard work. Something I've learned more and more as I travel through ministry is that just because people don't belong to a religious community doesn't mean that there isn't a desire to seek out answers to the deep questions and mysteries of life. But it is up to the church to remove the barriers of fear and the barriers that prevent access to safe spaces to explore a life of faith. 
barriers to learning about one who has calmed the storm, about a creator who loves us just as we are, and a spirit who binds us all together in the holy mystery of love. The Living Presence Podcast offers an opportunity for listeners to contribute to our Love for the World segment, where the worldwide community can lift up the people and places in need of alliance, awareness, and hope. 
Let us know who and where is on your mind this week. You can record your shout-out with your smartphone and email it to hi at livingpresenceministry.org. Or you can leave a voicemail at area code 289-903-0019. Your responses will be added to the show, and we are grateful for your contribution. Hello, my name is Chelsea Skeens. And I'm Sarah Jane Wedelainen. And we're both members of Burton Avenue United Church in Barrie, Ontario. This was my second year going to Toronto Pride. And I really enjoy going to Pride because I love being able to be authentically myself in a space where there are so many other people being their authentic selves too. And for so many people, being authentically Christian and or authentically queer is frowned upon, dangerous, or it could cost them their lives. I love being from a progressive Christian church where I can not only be myself, but where I can also be proud of who I am and have others embrace my full self, too. Uh, This was my first year ever going to any Pride event. As someone who only recently came out as gay, it was very important experience to join together with my fellow members of the LGBTQ community that I had long supported before realizing my own sexuality. The feeling of walking around with my partner, holding hands, and knowing that no one anywhere around me is looking at me differently for it was an amazing feeling. I've always felt welcomed uh, with my partner at home in my church community, but the rest of the world can be different. So to feel at home with my partner parading through the streets of a big city surrounded by people, that's what true pride feels like. Pride in her, us, and myself. The following prayer is offered by the United Church of Christ in the United States as part of their open and affirming movement and is an adaptation of a prayer by Elidia Smith of the United Church of Canada. Wonderful creator, constant friend, people of every sexual orientation, gender expression, and gender identity have the right to live with dignity and without persecution or discrimination. LGBTQ people of Chechnya Uganda, Zambia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and elsewhere who have been murdered and tortured because of who they are, we remember them and the people who love them. LGBTQ refugees from around the world seeking safety and sanctuary, we remember them and the people who welcome them trans and gender diverse people in the United States, Canada, Brazil, and elsewhere who are targeted victims of hate crimes and assaults. We remember them and the people who love them. LGBTQ people whose dignity and self-esteem have been eroded by hateful systems and structures, we remember them and seek to be people who love more fully. Individually, we each uniquely reflect your glory and express your love 
but anti-gay violence, homophobia, and transphobia have blocked many from recognizing your beauty in all people. All of creation suffers from the effects of such hate, fear, and violence. Today, we redirect ourselves to building bridges of love and hope, where harmful divisions have been made, making equity and equality for all people our goal, while working continually for justice so that everyone can live fully in your love. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be taking next week off for Canada Day, but we'll be back after that and hear about the time Jesus learned how hard it is to go back home. But until then, be good to yourselves. Happy Pride. Happy Canada Day. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.livingpresenceministry.org.